great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you make. You know, that is a simple mission statement, right? To give you guidance, information, so you can fatten that wallet of yours. But there are times that the advice, the information, the opinions I give may offend you or you may feel they're just wrong. And I want that feedback from you, and it's easy to do so. You go to Clark.com, go to Clark Stinks, and post how you think I could do a better job at what I do. And then once a week, Krista, our producer, goes through your posts on Clark Stinks and shares her favorites with you on the air. I should have never encouraged you to speak. You must think I'm pretty stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, pal. Why do you say that? I hate it when you say they're my favorites. Because when people it. get well, mad and think well, I'm mean. Well, what you don't see listening to us is I give Krista a big smile when I say that because you actually don't like reading criticisms of me. Well, I but, just, when I don't I agree do with them. Because I think that's how you learn. This is true. Just the sometimes if they're mean spirited, they bother me. That's okay. okay. Dear Mr. Howard. Oh, come on. You're gonna do that to me starting <laughs> off. Hey, you said you like this. You made an accusation. You, call me Clark. you made an accusation against United Airlines that just wasn't true. Yes, airlines overbook. They have always done this. When a person buys an airline ticket, it is a contract that gives the airline the right to deny a seat to a passenger with compensation. In this case, because of overbooking. You should know this, Mr. Howard. The assault on Dr. Lau that you claim never happened. United politely asked Dr. Lau to get off the plane. When he refused, United called the police and the Chicago police pleaded to Dr. Lau that he could not stay on the plane. On the plane. When the Chicago police could not reason with him, the Chicago police had no other option than to carry him off the plane. Injuries to Dr. Lau were self-inflicted as he threw a temper tantrum while being carried off the plane. Video substantiates these facts. There is a very serious problem in this country because of a lack of respect for law and order and authority. There is no higher authority on an aircraft than the pilot. None. Irregardless of that, when a police officer tells you to do something, do it. People look up to you, Mr. Howard. They respect you and follow your guidance. But when you undermine authority and law and order, you eat away at the foundation of our great American society. Does that make you feel good? (laughs) Calling me Mr. Howard three times, really. Please call me Clark in future posts. And uh, the situation with Dr. Dow is something that United itself realized that it handled completely wrong. They've changed totally how they handle overbookings. There's new software I talked about recently that airlines are going to be able to use to eliminate someone being yanked off an airplane after they're already sitting on it, which United says they're not going to do anymore. And so this was not about a lack of respect for police. It was a lack of respect by United Airlines for its customers. And it's just it's just a fact that we'll disagree on. I see the facts one way. You see them as another, and there's a lot of people in close quarters traveling. A lot of people get very agitated and anxious when they travel, and it is a situation where, as someone who flies every week pretty much, I see how almost everybody traveling and 
almost everybody working for airlines all deal with the built-in adversity that goes along with delays, weather, um, crowded airports, crowded flights, airport security, and all that. So this kind of thing is almost an outlier that happened with Dr. Dow, and it has changed the way the industry approaches issues with oversells. Sticking with the airline theme, based on my last horrible experience arriving back from Europe at Boston's Logan Airport, I was very interested in Clark's explanation of the global entry program. I believe he said the fee for registration was $30. Last night when I started the process, I discovered that the application costs $100 per person. I might still apply, but that 100 buck fee is pretty a pretty high bar for the occasional overseas traveler. All right. Great post. So, uh, there are times that, in shorthand, I don't explain it like I should. The um, Trusted Traveler Program pre-check is $17 a year paid up front for five years, 85 bucks. The Global Entry is $20 a year paid up front for five years, $100. The beauty of Global Entry is if you even travel occasionally internationally, you get it and pre-check all for the... 20 bucks a year paid up front is 100 bucks versus 17 a year paid up front for 85. And so global entry knocks it out of the park because you check yourself back in the United States. You have the expedited security lines around the country. You don't have to take your shoes off. You don't have to take your liquids out. You don't have to take your laptop out. So uh, the $20 a year paid up front, $100 for me, has been very, very worthwhile, obviously, as somebody who travels almost weekly. For someone who almost never travels, it's a waste of money. Clark, there's something in the air, and for now it's undefined. I do think you need to change your britches, though. When people call and ask you about closing credit cards, you tend to tell them not to. And I do agree, but you seem to think three cards is optimal. So I'd like you to explain why three cards is optimal versus five, which will result in a higher FICO, all other factors being the same, or even 10. The more Visa, MasterCard, Amex, Discover cards someone has, it stands to reason the more available credit they have, and thus the lower their utilization will be. Why not have one Discover, a couple of Amex, a few City, a few Chase, a few credit unions, a few regional banks? Given the formula of the FICO 8, it makes sense to have 20 cards aging as opposed to 2 to 4 cards aging. It also makes more sense to have more cards because even if the limits are low, 20 cards at 1K each is going to be better than 3 cards at 5K. And if you have a relationship with a good credit union or two, it's almost like a given that those limits will be higher than most regional banks, which results in lower utilization. Yes, it's annoying to charge minor purchases two times a year on the cards you don't use regularly, but for a better credit score, it only makes sense to have more cards instead of less. Now, if there's a reason to only have three cards, please share why, the only, why only three, and maybe I'll learn something. Your post is ideal because I want you to think about the context of a lot of the calls you'll hear me on where an individual only has a single card or at most two and so trying to get somebody who's very careful with how much credit they take on, I want them to incrementally step up to more. There's nothing at all wrong and a lot right with having a great number of credit cards. The only time that could become a hassle is when you're applying for a mortgage and the mortgage underwriter 
may look at that as a red flag that you have too many cards. But as an everyday thing, carrying a lot more cards, as you posted, is fine and likely will help boost your score. I carry, uh, between my business and my personal life, I have eight cards. And that has worked well for me with my score. A lot of people, though, can't deal with having too many cards because the problem is the supply creates demand. You have the cards, you may be more likely to use them and cause yourself trouble with debt. I listened to Clark for decades on the radio and have listened to almost all of the podcasts since they became available. For at least the past eight years, Clark has been saying that the low interest rates would soon be going up and advising listeners to plan their financial affairs accordingly. And for eight years, he has been wrong. Interest rates have stayed low despite Clark's consistent and continuing predictions that very soon they would be much higher. If Clark really could predict future interest rates, he could make a fortune in the financial markets by selling bonds short or using options, futures, and other such financial instruments. No one really knows where interest rates will be six months or a year from now. Clark should stop telling listeners with his great assurance and confidence that interest rates will certainly be higher later this year. He has been doing that for eight years, and for eight years, he's been wrong. So you are 100% right. I really uh, expected interest rates to move up quicker than they had. They have moved up in the last year. The Federal Reserve has signaled strongly that they are going to continue to move up over the next year. Likely additional amount will be like three quarters of a point up a prior point already. That's why if you heard me earlier, a few shows ago, you heard me talk about how savings rates have gone up to the highest they've been in the last eight years. So I think the interest rate corner has turned And I've been very surprised that I was so wrong that interest rates stayed low for so very long. Clark, you stink. Your own motto slash tagline states, spend less, save more. Yet you told a recent caller to spend more by buying the one-time online consumer reports ratings for a product as opposed to just going to their local public library and looking at it for free. Sounds like you need to change your motto, Stephen. Stephen, thank you. You're the second person recently. We had an Ask Clark about that as well, that I should have mentioned spending nothing by going to the library. Also, something that uh, that poster mentioned I was not familiar with with Consumer Reports is that some library branches, apparently, you have access through your library card to an electronic version for free for temporary loan out. And so it is a way that you can get access to consumer reports for free. And I should have mentioned that. That's why we do Clark Stinks. I want to hear from you. When you feel I've been out of line, please go to Clark.com, go to Clark Stinks, and please let me know. Stephen is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Stephen. Hello there, Clark. How you doing? Good. I hope you're having a fantastic day. Yes, I am. I have to say, first of all, that I enjoy your podcast. I, I listen to them every day when I bicycle to uh, work and back, so I just want to let you know that. All right. So are you a bicycle rider who has an electric assist to your bike, or are you riding the whole thing just with human power? 
I'm old school, uh, Clark. I do the human power. Oh, you're tough. <laughs> See, if yeah, I commuted by bike, I would go to work on electric assist and come home on pedal power. And in fact, I live in upstate New York with all the snow and Arctic winds, too, and I do that as well. So, pretty hardy guy. <laughs> I guess you are. Wow. So, by choice, you live in the cold and the snow? Uh, yes, this is why I was born and raised in upstate New York, okay. and I have a great job up in upstate and family. And uh, I have a I, good I really friend who's from Buffalo and uh, now lives in Massachusetts. And for him, living in the Boston area is not cold at all compared to what he grew up with in upstate New York. Yeah, we're a hearty bunch up here in upstate New York, that's for sure. That's great. Well, Stephen, how can I serve you? Well, I'm uh, currently 53 years old. I'm a couple of years away from an early retirement. And I had a basic question for you, Clark, on any opinion you have on on um, the uh, amount of money in 401ks. I currently, actually, just before the late recent market correction, I had a little over a million dollars in my current 401k. Um, and um, it just slipped down to 980000 recently. Uh, I do. That's all right. That's outstanding that you have crossed the million dollar threshold because almost nobody, I'm telling you, almost nobody ever manages to save a million dollars or more over a working lifetime. Well, I appreciate that. I'm pretty pretty excited and and proud of myself, and and I thank you for that compliment. What are you planning Um, to live on two years from now? Well, I have a pension with my current employer, and which I calculated is going to be approximately forty-three thousand a year. And my partner's a teacher; he's going to keep on working. He has an additional three hundred thousand in his four hundred three b. Our house and cars are all paid for. We have ninety-six acre of land paid for. Uh, we have another hundred thousand dollars in a T. Rowe Price bond fund. My so, goodness, you are so set for life. So your cost of living per year right now, you would guess is how much? Oh, I would say probably between the two of us living here in upstate New York, I would say probably around 50000 You are so set. I mean, you are, you are in such good shape. In fact, you're going to find that with that pension you've got, you're not going to need to touch any of the money you have in the 401k till way late in retirement. Till probably when you're required to start taking uh, what are known as RMDs, required minimum distributions, that start under current law at age 70.5. And actually, on that note, Clark, I was a little bit concerned, again, with the amount in the 401k. Am I, do you foresee that I might, unfortunately, be buying myself some trouble down the road in relation to, like, taxes or eligibility for benefits with such a high amount in the 401k? That is such a great question, and what I would encourage you to do in your 50s and even beyond, because you said you're retiring at 55, right? That's correct. Is that uh, I don't want you to consider taking Social Security till you're 70. Okay. And I'd like you, as you can over your 50s and into your 60s, convert small amounts of that money from... 401k to Roth IRA. In fact, you'll need to move money in and then you pay tax each year on the amount that you convert. And depending on your employer, you may have to lump some 
the money out of the 401k into your own IRA, and then over time, in dribs and drabs, as you can afford to pay the tax on it, move the money steadily into a Roth IRA. The more you do that before the time that you have to start taking required minimum distributions, the more flexibility you'll have financially and the less money you'll have that'll be subject to a tax time bomb uh, 15 or so years down the road. And again, congratulations on your physical health, riding a bike through brutal winter conditions (laughs) to and from work every day, and your physical health, how much money you've saved. What a champion in both camps. It's a scary day, April the 13th. Friday the 13th, taxes due in just days. I got a lot to say to you, and I want to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can save more and spend less, and don't let anybody ever rip you off. So here we are on Friday the 13th. I want to tell you, I am not somebody who is a uh, superstitious person. I never worry about stuff like that. I know many people are, but that doesn't phase me. But what does phase me is we're just days away from when you're supposed to file your income tax. What if you haven't started? You have the right with federal income tax to file for an automatic extension that gets you months more to do the paperwork and file your return. So if you're not going to be ready in time, file for that extension. Ultra, ultra easy, takes just a second. However, you have to guesstimate as well as you can what you owe the IRS and send in a check along with the extension. Now, what if you're somebody who has fairly simple tax situation? You just have not gotten around to it. I want to emphasize something that I really only talk about in January, not in April, and that is that most taxpayers are eligible right through irs.gov to file your income tax and prepare your return for free through a program called Free File. You'll see it on the main page of irs.gov. You'll be able to see the requirements, see if you meet the income eligibility requirements to prepare your return and file it for nothing. If you don't have the money to pay your tax bill due, pay whatever you can afford to pay. If it's nothing, still send in your return. If it's something, send it in. The IRS eats you alive if you fail to file, but just takes little nibbles of you if you fail to pay. So you file that return. You file that extension. That still counts as having filed on time because you have a legal right to do the extension. And send in what you can afford. Now, you even have the right to propose a repayment plan to the IRS or a payment plan to bring your tax bill due current and paid. And it's a pretty simple process. Whatever plan you propose... My experience, if you propose a plan where you pay the tax you owe in one year or less, they'll approve pretty much whatever you say if they're going to have their whole money in a year or less. If you can't pay it all in a year, 
Don't propose a plan you can't pay. Propose whatever it is you feel you can afford. Send in the, the payment plan document and then start paying against that document as you have proposed. The IRS typically won't get back to you for a long, long, long time telling you yes or no. And by then, you will have been paying in good faith as you offered, even if they don't agree. It buys you time, and it keeps you in their good graces. The most important message I want you to have, file your return or file an extension on time. Eileen is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Eileen. How are you? I'm fine, Clark. How are you? Thank you for taking my call. Absolutely, Eileen. I cannot believe how many people we are hearing from with your question. Hit me with it right now, if you would. Okay. I got a letter recently from my credit card company saying that my credit limit was being decreased, and I pay my bill in full every month. And may I ask who your credit card issuer is? Um, Yes, this is Capital One. All right. Um, You are, I don't know how many people we've heard from at this point who received these letters. It must have been like a mass mailing to Capital One cardholders reducing their credit limits. And you have done nothing wrong. That's good to know because it did feel a little punitive. It is. Well, it's punitive to your credit standing and credit score to have your limits reduced. The reason Capital One is doing it, uh, they haven't said this, but my belief, the if-then, is Capital One has seen a huge uptick in the number of people that are not paying their bills. What's known as the charge-off rate is the highest it's been since 2011, according to recent company filings with federal regulators. So they're getting nervous about people not paying their bills and the debt having to be charged off. And so the innocent are being punished along with the guilty, if you will. Hmm. So how many credit cards do you have, Eileen? Just two. One for online as you suggest, and then my mileage card. All right. I want you to get another card from another issuer other than Capital One. Okay. Because what this does to you when they reduce your available credit is that it has a direct impact on your overall credit score. And so that credit limit you've lost, you need to replace Pronto with another card. And I don't want you to close your Capital One card. I just want you to go get another one from someone else so that you protect your credit score. This is going to be a defensive move on your part. Okay. And And, uh, do you want another reward card? Like uh, you have the Capital One, you said you have one other. Are you a member of either of the warehouse clubs, Costco Wholesale or Sam's Club? Yes, Costco. All right. So Costco, you don't have their Visa card? I do not. All right, so it's free. It'd be from a different issuer. You'd have a Citibank card then. And the Costco card gives you, let me see if I remember, 3% cash back on restaurants, travel, 4% cash back on gasoline, 2% on anything you buy at Costco or Costco.com, 1% anywhere else. So it's actually a nice card to have. It has no annual fee. 
that would be great because I've been paying an annual fee with uh, Capital One. So your credit score, though, generally has been good? Yes, I actually just checked it. I'm in the excellent range. Okay, so get the cost. You can just go into cost. Next time you're in Costco, you can stop and apply for it or just go to Costco.com and you can apply for the Citibank Costco card. Okay. That'll restore a limit for you. And don't can, if you're going to can the Capital One because it's got the annual fee, don't do that willy nilly. If you decide later as you get close to the renewal where you have the annual fee again, contact Capital One because they have a lot of cards that have no annual fee and they could likely move you to one of the no annual fee cards and you keep that account active. Okay. I'll remember to do that and I will go into Costco pretty quick. (laughs) All right. Sounds great. And uh, the Costco card, if you remember to use it for restaurants, travel, gasoline, and shopping at Costco and use it for those four uses, it's a fantastic reward uh, amount to get for doing those things. Catherine is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Catherine. Hey, Clark. How you doing? Great. Thank you, Catherine. How can I be of service to you? Well, I have a um, little house on my property that I use from time to time for short-term rentals. And when I bought the property... Um, I looked at your information about homeowners insurance, and of the two companies that you think are great, one of them would not cover short-term rentals, and the other would. But it would only cover up to $10,000 worth of income um, from that rental property. And Oh, in the event and, that something happened at the property yeah. Yeah. and it was unavailable to earn income from for a while? Well, or, you know, for liability purposes or even, uh, you know, property damage purposes. Um, Liability? Oh, they can't have capped liability at... Oh, no, no, no. No, sorry. $10,000 of income. um, If I make more than $10,000 of income annually from that short-term rental, the damage or liability that accrues to a guest is not covered. Okay. So a question for you, which... Um, rental service are you using for the cottage? Airbnb. Right. Now, Airbnb offers you a million dollars liability anyway. They do, but there are a lot of exclusions, and to my knowledge, no one's ever actually seen a copy of the policy to understand what the exclusions are. And I belong to a lot of host forums, and people are having a very difficult time getting coverage, particularly if they have a shared space, so they're renting a room in their house, which I'm not. Um, And there's only one company that I know of that is offering, that is kind of focused on the short-term rental uh, business. Now, you can see the insurance policy. I just found the link where you can see the uh, PDF file of it. Okay. So you can read it. By the way, I want to congratulate you. You were the only Airbnb host in all the years that has ever asked me a question about insurance and liability and what gaps there may be. Well, you know, it's in the shared economy, I think people 
do things a little more informally than they do otherwise. And I think there are an awful lot of people out there who are taking a real chance on their insurance coverage. That's why I disclosed it to my to my insurance company when I bought the property, because I don't want to be in a position where I'm not covered. Well, they have a 10-page explanation if you go read the PDF. And if you make it through page 10, you are my favorite all-time listener. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and well, what, you is, just, and what you just mentioned, this is so much a part of the insurance industry having to accommodate new things like uh, somebody who is an occasional or frequent Uber driver or Lyft driver. Where does their auto insurance fit in that? Mm-hmm. How, how does it work? If somebody uses Toro, where you allow people to rent your car from you, uh, there are so many situations like this that the insurance industry is behind the curve on and needs to get modern because it's part of the uh, present and obviously a bigger part of the future. I totally agree with you, and I can't believe with the number of Airbnb hosts there are, or even of the other short-term rental companies, um, that only one insurance company has really stepped up and said, wow, this is a great niche for us. Let's see what we can do to help these folks. Because I'll tell you why. Insurance companies are extremely traditional and conservative. Mm -hmm. And the actuaries that figure out risk are so reluctant to try to scope out what the risk profile is for something that's a new line of business. And so they kind of sit on their hands for a while before they realize, hey, this is, this is potentially a new profitable outlet for us. We've got to find our way with it. Maybe they even do it in limited amounts where they, where they get the knowledge so they understand the risk profile they're facing. But... Uh, most insurers are just burying their hands in the sand about burying their heads in the sand about all these new ways that people are earning income, and they've got to get past that. Right, and it's such a lucrative potential market for them. All they see is the risk. They fail to see the reward. So maybe somebody's listening to us right now and says, we're not conservative, we're not afraid. We're willing to change. We'll get to it. Yeah, because I really like my insurance company, and I I would hate to have to move, and maybe with um, Airbnbs, anyway, their their host guarantee, maybe that would keep me from having to move. Yeah, that's why, since you are so thorough, go read the PDF and see if it relieves some of your fear about the risks involved with them being there supposedly to protect you in that liability situation. You may have heard the warnings about buying phones from Huawei and ZTE that are two Chinese companies that parts of the U.S. government and military are worried about them being state actors working on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party and Red Army. And that's why Christopher is calling. Christopher, you were concerned and interested at the same time about ZTE and or Huawei. Is that right? Yeah. Um, the particular big reason I'm worried about is because, like, like I've been thinking about buying, like, a ZTE Blade VA Pro because, like, I, um, 
That's a relatively cheap, like, smartphone that has, like, 802.11 AC Wi-Fi, if I'm not mistaken. It certainly has, like, 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi, but that's capable of that. But it's just that, you know, like, um, should I really be concerned on, like, the Chinese government spying on me? I mean, I live in the United States for crying out loud. Yeah, so in Europe, they are rolling their eyes at this, and they see no thing that we should really be worried about with the phones and actually the greatest issue and greatest danger involves Huawei which sells an enormous amount of communications equipment to the cellular industry and to governments around the world for communications towers and sells a lot of hardware and software that's part of those towers and so if there is a national security threat it's much more likely with the big communications towers and software that Huawei brings to the market than it is with the actual handsets themselves. In fact, Huawei is prohibited from selling most of its technology for towers and communication behind the scenes in our country. But as far as the phones, you see a ZTE phone that you like. It's got the right price point to it. Christopher, I'd buy the thing. I can't say I'm not concerned about pre-installed malware because, like, on this one tablet I have, like, that was bought for me for cheap, like, or something like, it has pre-installed malware on it. Well, I'm sorry about that, and I guess that could happen. You know, people buy a lot of ultra-cheap Chinese tablets on AliExpress and on Wish and Geek, and... A lot of those tablets, the complaint I get is they don't work well. I haven't heard anybody really talk about malware being an angle on it. But uh, it is an area that if it worries you too much, even though the ZTE phone is a real deal, just skip buying it. But it is something that is an active national security concern about the Chinese government, what kind of nastiness they may be up to, and what kind of threat they may represent to our national security. And that's why there's such a focus on these two companies. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast of our show, I'd love it if you'd subscribe. Whatever your favorite podcast app is, we're pretty much there. And whether you love what you hear from me or hate it, Take time to write a review. It's how we all learn from each other is from those reviews. 